What is up? This is Max Sanders signing on on a Monday, Monday fun day. And I'm feeling refreshed, rejuvenated, at a very relaxing, very calming Sunday evening. And you must ask yourself, why was it calming? What was so different about it? Well, I went to sleep at like two, three in the morning to the dulcet tones of this Sports Center documentary or ESPN Plus documentary, Long Gone Summer. And it was about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and their home home run chase in the summer of 98. And it was highly <laughs> inaccurate, but it was just cute and very nostalgic. And they kind of glossed over the whole steroid thing maybe in the last 10 minutes. But you kind of forgot that it was these two guys who were generally nice guys who were in the middle of America and respected the past and you know, enjoy, respected the record. And we were all just kind of obsessed by the watching them hit dingers. And it was just fun to relive that point in your life because I guess when you're like 12, 13, 14, those are the sports memories that kind of are embedded in you most. And it's crazy to think about that baseball is just not part of my life anymore. I used to be a diehard Red Sox fan, live and die with, you know, Pedro and Manny and David Ortiz and up until 04 I thought it was never going to happen and I was going to die without a World Series and that was half a badge of honor and half you know across the bear and now I could care less about baseball it's just too I mean in our in the world we have today where we want instant gratification just too long too boring too too dull I don't got four I don't have four hours anymore I mean I do but I don't I don't want to spend them watching you know, 90% non-action. But in that summer, everyone cared. It was all everyone talked about. It was, I mean, like, the storylines, too, were really cool that they kept going back and forth, that there was never any anger or, or vitriol between the two of them, and that they were just kind of very different people. You know, Sammy, at the time, I think, hardly spoke English, and Mark was this California kid, and, you know, one was just big hulking, you know, almost mythical figure. And one was kind of a rookie. And I don't know, it just, it made me think of simpler times. They, they definitely like with the music and everything like that, they made you feel the twinge of nostalgia. They did a good job. They knew, they knew what they were doing and it was cheap ploys, but you know, it worked. But that was the dessert of my content uh, feast yesterday. And the dinner, the main course, the porterhouse, or for me, I guess, as a vegan, mostly I'd say, the to like the baked tofu, which does not sound nearly as appealing. Although I do like my tofu medium rare. It's very. Don't ask me how I do it, but it's a unique, unique recipe passed on from generations. But uh, it was the two-hour and forty-minute new Spike Lee joint. Uh, it was called The Five Bloods, D-A. I'm not saying it like I'm stupid. The Five Bloods. I'm not cool enough to pull that off. I mean, is it, it's hard to say that and sound cool unless like, unless you're like really cool. The Five Bloods. Yeah, I sound, I sound like a honky, but that's what it's called. And it's going to annoy me every time I have to say it because duh, I don't like that. But apparently, I guess it was The Five Bloods and it was written as a story of... I mean, well, the story itself is these four African-American uh, Vietnam vets uh, go back to Vietnam to find the body of their squad leader in the jungle, but they're also looking for 
a gold treasure they left there, like gold bars that they left in the jungle. And it's kind of this whole discovery of race, of friendship. It's, I mean, it's not even, it's, it's a war movie. It's action. It's a buddy, buddy movie. It's kind of a movie about uh, age and what it's like to grow older in America and also to be a veteran. And to, I mean, it's a Spike Lee movie, which means it's about 30 things in one. It's just crazy. Like you look at any Spike Lee movie and it, he always seems to defy genre. He doesn't, even if it's specifically something, he puts in just so many flashes and flourishes of other topics and other things he's concerned with that it's kind of just a hodgepodge of humanity. And I think that's kind of the Spike Lee calling card of his movies that he doesn't want to be pigeonholed. He's he's saying, I want to say a lot of things and I'm going to say it through this medium in this time. And, you know, for two hours and 40 minutes, I mean, he keeps you engaged. It is an intense movie. And I mean, I think that Spike's legacy in general is that he knows how to make his view come across on the screen clearer than just about anyone. I mean, he's in that Tarantino, Scorsese, Spielberg, and I'm trying to think who else is Kubrick. It just, you know, the movie's leaking of his kind of, of his ideas and no one no one told him what to do and he didn't compromise anything he pushed this movie through and if i mean if the content alone doesn't tell you that just i mean can you imagine this movie was rejected by all the studios every single studio except netflix rejected this movie and said no we don't want a spike lee movie even after his last movie won the oscar i think i think black klansman won but i mean black black klansman uh cost only $15 million to make and made a hundred million dollars. And still, because he's so not hard to work with, but he's so in control of his own vision and so kind of wants complete control. I think it turns off a lot of studios or it's hard to work with him, I guess. I mean, I'm talking about him like I know him personally, but uh, this is, I mean, it just blows my mind that something this important and this fun and this is a movie I'll watch once a year for the rest of my life. Like this, I mean, there's very few movies that do that. And the fact that someone who's that prolific, who's made 23 movies, most of which are pretty much regarded as classics, uh, still has trouble making movies. It's like he never fully crossed into mainstream. And I'm not particularly sure why, because this, I mean, this movie has some serious mainstream appeal too. Like it may have a lot of heady messages on very important topics, but it's also just a fun hang. It's great dialogue. It's snappy. It's, I mean, the action's intense and violent and you just want to hang out in this world for as long as he wants to have you. I mean, when you watch a Spike Lee movie, you just know, you can tell by all the camera, camera work and flourishes and like quick cuts and different, he uses a different frame action uh, to signify different time periods and he'll do like quick clips into like a Muhammad Ali uh, speech or at the end he does a uh, Martin Luther King speech for like two minutes or he splices in pictures of historical uh, black moments and it's you know he's arrogant about what he does but in, in a way where you're like you know more than I do so okay educate me because I mean the interesting thing about this movie I mean, well, one of the, I mean, there's so much interesting things about this movie. This movie is one of those movies you could talk about for longer than the movie actually 
uh, ran, which is crazy knowing that it's three hours long. But, oh man, I lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, here it is. That uh, when you think about Vietnam movies, you think Apocalypse Now, you think Full Metal Jacket, you think uh, Platoon, you know, those kind of uh, those kind of movies. And they're not, they're pretty white in all their movies. I don't think there's ever been like a full black battalion before. And in this movie, they educate you and tell you 32% of uh, participation from the United States was black uh, participation. And I had no idea. And that they were in the front lines kind of a lot of the time. And there was people that could buy their way out who had, uh, if they were in college, I think they could buy their way out of the draft for $300 or something like, wait, no, is that the civil war? That might be, but I think there was a, there was a clause that you could buy your way out or there was an excuse if you were in college and college wasn't really available to African Americans in the same way. So that kind of jarred me and really kind of, I mean, maybe I'm just in the dark, but I think that's kind of not a very well-known fact about a war that was very important to forming America. And so, I mean, the movie takes place, and nowadays, it's four vets of a uh, squad. It's Paul, played by Delroy Lindo, who did every movie in the 90s you've ever seen. He was like the cop in Gone in 60 Seconds. He was the bad guy drug dealer in Get Shorty. He was the scientist in the core. He's been in Spike Lee movies like Clockers and Malcolm X. You know him. I mean, he's looked the same, too, for 35 years. It's crazy. He's... He was like he's like Samuel L. Jackson, like born he, he was born looking thirty and or thirty to forty and hasn't aged at all in thirty five years. It's crazy. I don't know something about it. I need to figure that out. But uh, so he it's him. It's Otis who's played by Clark Peters, who was Lester Freeman on The Wire. And if you don't know that, get out of my face because The Wire rules and Lester's the coolest character on The Wire, undisputed. So. Go watch that right now if you haven't, because he is the smartest cop you've ever seen, and just very cool. And he's still cool in this. He's he was the medic of the group back in the day. There's Eddie, played by Norm Lewis, who's mostly a theater actor. You probably wouldn't know him. And then there's Melvin, played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr., who was Clay Davis, uh, the state senator, with a hand in everyone's pocket in The Wire as well. So the movie starts with them uh, meeting in a hotel in Vietnam, and it's just one of those. Like they're all doing like elaborate handshakes and they're all ripping on each other. And it just feels like a buddy movie. You just, you like everyone right away. You see the group, you see that Melvin's kind of the goof off. Eddie's the one that was successful uh, after Nam. Otis is the level-headed kind of planner of the group. And Paul, Paul's probably one of the most complex characters to be on screen in the last decade. I mean, so he's, definitely got PTSD like there's no question he's got a a son who sneaks kind of sneaks onto the trip a little bit later played by Jonathan Majors who's fantastic his name's David in the in the movie and this guy just came onto the scene just recently and I mean he is just something else so I'm excited to see what his career brings but anyways Paul is wearing a make America great again hat and he's a Trump supporter and it's jarring because I don't think there's ever been really a black Trump supporter in a central role in a movie. I don't think since, I mean, I can you think of one? I can't, I mean, I, I can't think of even one where like it comes in passing and 
it's because he's disenfranchised by how America's treated him over the last, you know, 50 years. And I think, and he's kind of, he's weirdly racist about building a wall and how his opportunities have been taken. And it's, it's not on under, I mean, it's not incomprehensible what he's arguing. It's, I mean, it lacks a certain sense, but you know, we're all kind of, we bleed blue. So I think we're kind of a little bit, uh, confused by it, but I think that's the point. I think that there are all these people out there and that Spike Lee wanted to acknowledge that not everyone is in these cookie cutter molds of just right on one way or right on the other. And that, I mean, if you even look back to movies, like do the right thing, like with, uh, his portrayal of Italians in New York and how, yeah, they were racist, but he also took their point of view and kind of gave you their perspective and didn't really, didn't demonize them or didn't hate on them. He just explained their views and treated them like human beings. So I think Spike Lee really has a gift for seeing all sides of things and is willing to kind of, he's willing to give you the benefit of the doubt and hear you out. So these four guys, it seems like they're just coming back for a reunion. You know, they're drinking. And also, uh, the the movie's soundtrack is all Marvin Gaye for the most part, which is just awesome. I mean, that must have cost an arm and a leg because Marvin Gaye's good stuff. And they play what's going on just a bunch in different kind of acoustic forms or like without the music. And fun fact, Marvin Gaye tried out for the Detroit Lions in uh, 1970. Not sure. Not sure if he's any good, but or if they did it just because he was musically talented. But he did that. Or at least the internet told me that. So must be true. But uh, so a bunch of Marvin Gaye music, you know, they're dancing in the club. They're doing like a soul train kind of dance. And bam, these guys can dance. And they're all like 60, 65. And they just seem charming and uh, the well lived in. Like you understand their characters right away. And that they're this group that is disjointed because, you know, they're all very different, but they have this brotherhood and this respect. And the person they're, going to find the body of was their staff sergeant, uh, Storm and Norman, who was played by Chadwick Boseman, who's also Black Panther. And they splice in between uh, like the Vietnam scenes from the flashback for when they were fighting in Vietnam to now. And the crazy thing is rather than doing the Irishman de-aging stuff, which sucks by the way, no one should do that. I mean, I, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I mean, Joe Pesci looked a million years old. De Niro looked crotchety and like, you know, when you're older, you start walking a different way. You bend certain ways. I mean, getting old looks like it sucks. So hopefully I don't have to do it. I'm, I'm still convinced that maybe I'm de-aging. I'm Benjamin buttoning, buttoning, but uh, instead Spike Lee decided uh, when they do the flashbacks, all the older gentlemen, Paul, David, Otis, and Eddie, uh, and not David because he's the son of uh, Paul and Melvin, uh, would be in the war scenes, but as old men with young uh, Storm and Norman. And it was, a, it was an interesting choice. I didn't mind it. I thought it was cool. Uh, and the war scenes were fantastic. Like they changed the, ac- uh, the frame action of the uh, cameras. And it looks, you know, 1970s. It's got kind of like this yellow sepia little kind of tone to it. And the action is really great. And Spike's not normally an action guy, but... Th- he nails the shooting and the fighting stuff. It's it's on par. I feel like this movie is kind of equal or uh, kind of comparison is Inglorious Bastards. This feels like his Inglorious Bastards, but with a little bit deeper meaning, you know, a little bit more depth to it. 
but uh the violence and the kind of the historical war part of it feels very kind of Tarantino World War II ish. So that was a, that was interesting. That was it felt like a new step for Spike. It definitely seemed like he was trying something different, and I respect that. You know, Spike knows how to do. Spike is technically adept at everything, so he can he could do anything. He could close his eyes and look in the thesaurus and find three words or the dictionary and find three words, and he'd make a movie about it. It'd be like milk, jello monkeys and he'd find a way to make a horror movie about monkeys that were being cruelly tested upon with poisonous popsicles and milk and they became radioactive and 100 feet tall and took over china there's there's better writers than me and i need to i need to work on my freestyling skills because I picked two foods and an animal. That, that wasn't great, but you get the point. He could do anything. He can make chicken salad out of you know what. You know what I mean? He, he, can, he can take anything. And because he's so talented as a filmmaker, I mean, if you were listening to him talk about how he makes films, he cares about lighting so much. There's one scene in the movie 25th Hour where he's like, this red light in the background, I thought it represented the anger that was going through, you know, the character's body. And it flickered for a quick two seconds and then went out because he calmed down and I'm like, no one saw that. <laughs> no one knows what you're doing, but he cares that much. And the movie has quick clips. Like it like goes from one scene to the next so quickly, almost your eyes get jarred. Like you're, oh my God, I'm in the next scene. And beautifully shot. I mean, everything is just definitely, it's, he definitely shot in Vietnam. I mean, the shots look, I, I hope he did. If not, I, he fooled the heck out of me. But just this beautiful appreciation for the country. and. Also, I mean, he, the way he writes dialogue is second to none, except maybe Tarantino. But he does this one thing, too, that's interesting. He likes splicing in historical facts into movies, and he'll show, like, clips of the person. Like, if he said something about uh, Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X, he'll show a picture. Or he talked about the first uh, black Vietnam vet to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor when he jumped on a grenade when he was 18. And they show, you know, a picture of him. It's like, he takes you out of the movie, but in a way where you know you're watching a movie that's, that he's love that he loves making. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, he's kind of whirling around the idea, like, I'm making a movie. I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm like, yeah, I'm excited watching a movie. And he just makes sure you know you're watching a movie. And it's not like just a story. He wants to, he wants to use all the bells and whistles. And God bless him for it. Because maybe because I've seen all of the generic movies, I like when people try things that are just a little different, a little out there. And he definitely goes for it. So the four guys go into the jungle under the guise that they're going to find Storm and Norman's body. And that's part of it. They actually do want to find his body, but they're looking for the gold too. So it's an adventure movie where they're looking for the gold. And, you know, I mean, one of them, uh, Otis has problems with oxycontin and you know that's part of the uh, that's actually part of the opioid crisis is like another like wink to like a problem in america that he does and it's like wow he just gets into that quick gets in and out and he just he likes to address everything that's on his mind you can tell it's like free form he's just flowing and you know they find the gold and then everything goes to shit and you know there's landmines out there and I, the key scene is 
there's a key scene in the middle of the movie where one of the characters steps on a landmine and getting him off of the landmine. I mean, it's one of, it's one of the best scenes I've seen in the last 10 years when it comes to tension, when it comes to uh, character development, when it comes to strengthening the ties of all the people involved, it's like nine characters and they're all trying to work together to get this one character off a landmine. And I mean, that's probably the key scene of the movie, honestly. I mean, the second half is just ultra violent and more war action. The first half is, you know, kind of more speaking towards the Vietnam War and what these guys went through and how they're affected now as older men and also their relationship between each other and how they relate to culture as a whole and also how they're how they feel as African Americans in America. So, you know, it's these two movies in one and this middle scene with the uh, landmine is kind of the bridging gap between the two. So, I mean, I could just, you know, I think this movie needs to be seen three, four or five, six times because there's just so much to pick up on. And, you know, I was so into it. I, after I watched it last night, I got on rogerebert.com, read the reviews, even though it's not Roger because he's dead, but whoever it is now, you know, I don't even look at who it is. I just pretend it's Roger Ebert. And I know that that that's probably what they think people do, but you know, well played because that's how I do. And that's how I, I think about it. And it, they gave it four stars and, you know, talked. I love when they go in depth, like the article is four times longer than you think it would be because it's just such an important movie. And it reminded me of uh, Roger Ebert's actual review of do the right thing where he's like, few movies stay with you, you know, after the credits roll and like, they'll just be with you forever. And this is one of those movies when he's talking about doing the right thing. This is also one of those movies. I'm just, it's like a long walk and listen to an hour and a half podcast on the big picture, uh, which is a ringer podcast about Spike Lee and this movie. And I just couldn't get enough of it. So I spent like five hours kind of with this movie. And also, I mean, the performance by Delroy Lindo, who's Paul, who's the Trump supporting PTSD, uh, kind of central lead of the movie this guy if he doesn't win an oscar i will eat my hat i will i will go outside and put dirt between two pieces of bread and just eat a dirt sandwich because i could i can't see anyone else being more gifted and more prepared and more who could shine more in this role i mean he has spike lee has this unique ability which not very many directors do where his characters say monologues directly into the camera like mid mid, in middle of the movie too it's like right in the middle of the action he's just like you know what this guy's gonna rant for i don't know two three minutes and just stare right into your soul he's done it in 25th hour he's done it and do the right thing i mean he's done it a bunch i think in malcolm x he's done it too it's just it's not very it's not done very often because it can't be done very well usually it takes you out of the movie but if it's done right it sucks you in and magnifies the importance of everything that's going on and just seeing paul as this kind of broken man who's trying to find some sense of meaning and purpose in the jungle uh i don't know just it got to me i definitely i definitely got a little teary eyed too and i mean and delroy lindo is has been a fantastic actor for 25 30 years it's i remember he played satchel page in a movie like 25 30 years ago it was like an hbo movie and he looked 55 then so it's like whatever he's drinking or eating i need i need his diet 
or, you know, if he's stealing the souls of younger men, maybe that's what it is. I need to do that. But so the action is awesome too. Just really violent, really kind of just gnarly, you know, gunplay and just a lot of explosions and also just quippy dialogue. I think he's learned that more in the recent years, like with Black Klansman and Inside Man. I know that was like 12 years ago, but uh, he kind of, he's figured out how to be more mainstream with it when he wants to be. And he can be a really great mainstream director. And I think I'm going to need to watch this movie a few more times to kind of get the gist of it all. But that's how I feel so far. And I hope you go out. Well, no, you don't have to go out. You can just go on Netflix and watch it. So go on Netflix, watch Defy Bloods. Let's see, let's see if I can say cool. Defy Bloods. How's that sound? Is that cool? Nope. And I never will be. So go see this movie because all Spike Leak joints are important and fun. And they teach you something. It's kind of like a Ken Burns Civil War movie, but like directed by Tarantino. So there you go. Now, if that's not a pitch that will get you to a TV, I don't know what is. 